Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Good evening and welcome to the Interpreter Radio Show, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, history, doctrine, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can find us at interpreterfoundation.org. That's interpreterfoundation.org. I'm Bruce Webster. Here in the studio with me, as always, is the honored Robert Boylan. And Chris, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? We can hear you. Okay. So Chris is calling Great. in from home. Uh, <clears throat> tonight, for the first hour, we're going to be covering uh, some of the more fun chapters in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 26 through 30. Uh, these are some of uh, Nephi's more spectacular uh, prophecies and uh scriptural repurposing, particularly of uh, Isaiah 29, in dealing both with the uh, uh, visit of Christ to the Americas and uh, and then our own time, the last days. Uh, I, I actually spoke as a high council speaker talking about the necessity today of studying the Book of Mormon and quoted T. Nibley in saying, Woe unto the generation that understands the Book of Mormon. And these are some of the chapters that uh, we need to understand. Uh, I'm going to start it off by kicking it over to Robert for some initial remarks. And then we'll go to Chris and then uh, do our usual roundtable. Cool. Well, in terms of the background, this is just after Nephi's exposition, if you will, of various Isaiah texts. Um, I'm sure like in last week's show, they discussed the use of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon and how it's not simply like, say, a copying paste of, say, the King James. Often Nephi adds a few things here and there, even when he's quoting verbatim from Isaiah, he's likening it to his people in the here and now. But now he moves on and transitions, if you will, and prophesies of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, its reception, and as you said, and especially when you get to chapter 27, although some of it's in 26 as well, he purposely reworks Isaiah 29, where the book, which he's assimilate in Isaiah 29, becomes a reality, and that is the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. So, um, yeah, these are like various prophecies about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and its uh, future reception through the uh, prophet Joseph Smith. Chris, your initial thoughts. Um, yeah, when we're reading 26 through 30, they're, they're fabulous chapters. They're some of my favorite chapters, actually, in the Book of Mormon. Um, but I love this quote by Robert Millett. He says, possibly more than in any other place, in scriptures, particular detail is given in chapters 26 through 30 about the devil's manner of operation and about how he carefully traps people. It may seem strange that a book of God would contain so much about the devil and his ways, but it is necessary in order that mortals might recognize evil when they see it and know how to prepare against it. The Book of Mormon not only shows us what the gospel of Christ is, but it also shows us what it is not. And if you want a really extraordinary experience, go through and just highlight all of the characteristics of disciples of Satan in these four chapters, and you can get a pretty good idea of the road not to travel. Okay, well, let's, let's dig in. Uh, first, we have Nephi prophesying. Uh, <clears throat> some, gosh, almost 600 years ahead of time, Christ's visit to the Nephites. And he talks about the, the destruction that's going to occur. He's saying signs that are going to occur, then the destruction that will occur, which, of course, we will see in 3rd Nephi. Uh, <clears throat> and, and again, uh, uses, drives a, a bit of both uh, Old Testament, well, a bit of Old Testament language in describing it. Let's see here. I can do this. I can talk intelligently. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the theme that will occupy all four of these chapters is that of God's judgment on the wicked. 
and he applies it both to, well, first, to the destruction at the time of the crucifixion and death of Christ in the new world. Then he applies it to the, the final destruction of the Nephite nation. And then he casts forward to our time and talks about God's judgment upon the wicked uh, in our day and draws the same parallels as per Chris's comments of the, uh, what he nearly liked to call the doctrine of the two ways. Uh, you have sort of two choices to make. You get to choose uh, whether you are part of uh, Christ's plan or not, and that will determine what is going to happen. Robert. Well, it kind of shows like uh, for the ancient people, time was not linear, but it was like a cycle. Uh, there was a very good book by Romanian sociologist and anthropologist, Merkia Eliade, um, a male, by the way, um, on this kind of concept. Um, but it does seem like the type of the destruction that Nephi is speaking about when it comes to say that would be fulfilled in 3 Nephi 8 and 9 is a type, if you will, of the eschatological, and that's a fancy term for like the end times destruction that will come when Christ comes again, he's perusia. Um, I do kind of find, uh, Nephi did begin a, on uh, 2 Nephi 26 verse 1 uh, with a rather interesting claim that, after, and after Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you, my children, and my beloved brethren, and the words which he shall speak unto you shall be the law which he shall do. So here Nephi is prophesying about the then future coming of Christ after his resurrection to the Nephites, which we know was fulfilled in 2 Nephi 11 and onwards, uh, and the destruction, of course, like in chapters 8 and 9. But what's rather interesting, like Nephi is prophesying that the law of Moses would be actually done away with because he speaks of how Christ will come with a new law. So this is like one of the very important soteriological, a salvation-related messages in the Book of Mormon that's... Uh, one is hammered over and over again throughout the attacks. Like, the law of Moses has never been salvific. It has never been. Um, it's only in and through Christ. Um, we were mentioning, like, Hebrews, like, a few months ago, just me and you. And Hebrews' message is, like, any efficacy of the old covenant sacrifices was done on the basis of the then-future sacrifice of Christ. Um, it, they had no intrinsic efficacy outside of that future event. And the same when it comes to the law of Moses. It's a schoolmaster, as Paul would say. And in a few months' time, we'll be discussing Abinadi um, and his great exposition. Like, the law of Moses has never been salvific. Christ's law has always been salvific. And he'll bring and inaugurate that new law when he would come to the people and we see this uh, in turn Nephi. And also, it's uh, in verses 2 and 3, it speaks of, like, as you said, the various signs of the destruction that would come. This kind of shows, like, the very great internal consistency in the Book of Mormon. Because if you read verses 2 and 3, that speaks of the uh, various destructions. Uh, for instance, um, you know, um, how the blooded saints will cr uh, cry out from the, uh, from the ground and uh, the destruction in, say, verses 6 and onwards about the uh, great anger of the Lord and um, the destruction that would await the people. This is actually more or less repeated in 3 Nephi 8. And if you're familiar with the dictation theory um, of Scouts and others, 2 Nephi came after 3 Nephi. So there's maybe like 200 pages of a difference, but there's very great internal consistency between these uh, two events. Um, so again, there's a very strong level of internal consistency in the Book of Mormon here as well, which I think we'll be discussing the uh, next hour when it comes to uh, explanations for the Book of Mormon. Yep. Chris, your thoughts on 26, chapter 26 here? Um, after, after we see the, um, the announcement here that Christ will minister to the Nephites, um, we see Nephi describing <clears throat> the conditions. And he says that the individuals will be proud, they will be wicked, they will kill the prophets and the saints. And then he talks about, you know, the, um, the destruction that will come upon them. But I think what is so tender is in verse 7, when he says, Oh, the pain and the anguish of my soul for this loss of the slain of my people. For it well nigh consumeth me before the presence of the Lord, but I must cry unto my God, thy ways are just. So you can see the pathos here. You can, you can, you get a sense of his concern and his love for his people. And yet, ultimately, as they turn away from righteousness and as they embrace wickedness, they will, um, they will lose the blessings and possibilities that could have been theirs with righteousness. 
Um, and so I just love that we see that his concern here is for the people. And that, in many ways, is a prototype of Jesus Christ, because throughout the scriptures, and we're going to see as we go on here, we're going to get a very lovely contrast between what Satan's intentions are for individuals and the way that he seeks to enslave and to destroy them, and though in the way that, of course, Christ um, is, his total intention here is to save individuals and to bring them back so that they can dwell with he and his Father in heaven. I love verses 12 through 17, and verses 12 through 17, um, we see um, um, Nephi teaching um, that in the last days his descendants would be well to be taught the gospel. But I think one of the wonderful verses here is verse 17, because it says, Thus saith the Lord God, they shall write the things which shall be done among them, and they shall be written and sealed up in a book, and those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not have them, for they seek to destroy the things of God. So we're anticipating the, you know, the writing of the Book of Mormon here. And, you know, uh, the doings among the uh, Nephites and the Lamanites are going to be written, they're going to be buried in the earth. The kind of irony for me is that back in the day, Joseph Smith, um, one of the um, uh, of the way that they accused him and uh, accused him and that they mocked him is that um, when Joseph Smith found these plates in the earth, you know he was charged with being a fraud um, that this was abnormal that you would find these things, although there certainly was treasure hunting going on in his day, but the idea of finding these plates in the earth, and yet since Joseph Smith's day, we've consistently found uh, Qumran is a good example with the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and many of these other non-canonical but apocryphal documents where actually the individuals actually oftentimes record the fact that we're going to write these down, we're going to, um, we're going to seal them up, we're going to very carefully preserve them, and then we're going to hide them away for future generations so that they won't be polluted and so that they won't be perverted and so that they'll come forward in their pure and pristine form. And so in many respects, as time has gone on, the manner of, um, you know, the plates and Joseph Smith finding them in the earth is just another testimony to, um, you know, uh, what a great prophet he was. And then, of course, it goes on here and it talks about the um the um the ways that individuals will turn from Jesus Christ and he talks about um they will set up many churches but put down the miracles of God they'll preach unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning that they may get gain and grind upon the face of the poor many churches envying strifes malice even Joseph Smith dealt with that in his day because you will remember that one of the problems for him was the confusion he saw around them as individuals associated with different faiths during the uh, you know the um, awakening that was taking place in upstate, upstate New York that um, once they were all brotherly and they were all friends until they actually picked a church and then once they picked a church there was enormous dissension among those individuals and enormous competition of course um, for um, you know support for the ministers priestcraft we would call it for the support of those priests in that period of time and so we get this lovely description of some of the things that we need to avoid and you know it goes on I could I mean every verse here murder works of darkness he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord. And then he says, The Lord God worketh not in darkness. He doeth not anything save it be for the benefit of the world. He loves the world, even lays his life down from for them. And so he pleads for them. And I think this pleading, I think this is, again, these are beautiful verses where he says to them, you know, that I am offering you salvation with for no cost whatsoever. Come to me, ye ends of the earth, by milk and honey, without money and without price. I am deeply desirous to give you the greatest and the best things that are available to mankind on this earth. And it simply costs you nothing other than your embrace of the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, he reiterates the fact that all men are privileged, the one likened to the other, and none are forbidden his salvation, his salvific gospel. And so these are just absolutely, this is an exquisite chapter and a description here of priestcraft and, you know, all are alike unto me, black and white, bond and free, male and female, female, 
he that remembers the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. So we see how Satan operates, we see how Jesus Christ operates, and the contrast is extraordinarily stark. I have just a couple things to add for this chapter. First is, uh, <clears throat> we see the start of this midrash on Isaiah 29, uh, where Nephi is basically repurposing Isaiah 29, uh, freely applying it and extending it to events that he sees with regards to uh, both, again, future events, both with his own people and with uh, things in our day. So we're going we're gonna to see that start here, and it's going to carry on over the next couple chapters as well. The other one is that you, you have something which is a theme that's pervasive through the Book of Mormon, which is the theme of dust. Uh, Isaiah 52, 1 and 2 are quoted directly two to three times within the Book of Mormon and then referenced indirectly in a number of places, such as uh, uh, Lehi's instructions to Laman and Lemuel. That's uh, Isaiah 52, 1 and 2 is, says, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Uh, Moroni quotes us. The Savior quotes us. Uh, it's referenced indirectly, but throughout the Book of Mormon, there is this pervasive theme of the dust, uh, and quite literally in terms of arising from the dust into the dust you return. So when he talks about the destruction of his people, he talks about those, again, quoting Isaiah 29, those talking from the dust or voices issuing from the dust. And it's fascinating to see how pervasive, if you do a search on the word dust in the Book of Mormon, how much this shows up. Let's move on uh, to 27 since we've got some. And once again, we're back to Isaiah 29. And this is a starts with a more direct Quote with, again, modifications. I'll let Robert talk on that in a second. Uh, and then the whole sealed book midrash. So, Robert, I'll pass it on to you. Sure. Uh, 27 verse 1 begins, But behold, in the last days, or in the days of the Gentiles, yea, behold, all the nations of the Gentiles, and also the Jews, both those who shall come upon this land, and those who shall be upon other lands, yea, even upon all the lands of the earth, behold, they will be drunken with iniquity and all manners of abominations. So um, it's looking at the end times or the days of the Gentiles, the eschaton, and it's speaking about the great wickedness of the people. So a very low view of 19th century Americans, apparently. Um, <laughs> that's partly a joke for the immigration officer. But um, as you note, um, even like in verses six, uh, 15 to 17 of the previous chapter, Nephi is reworking like a midrash or a pesher, um, Isaiah 29, the, um, which is quoted by Christ in Mark 7, Matthew 15, and he applies that to his time. Nephi is like um, likening the scriptures as Christ didn't understand to his time by reappropriating, if you will, Isaiah 29 and using that for his then contemporary audience and also his then future audience as well. For those who are running like a Pesher and Midrashis, that's a uh, very simplistic um understanding of what that is. But it's rather interesting, for instance, in chapter 26, as well as in chapter 27, um, there's, actually no, there's actually no literal physical book in view in Isaiah 29. It's a simile. But that simile becomes a physical reality in, Isaiah, uh, in Nephi's prophecy, because, of course, he's applying it to the then coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the plates and so forth. Um, in the previous chapter, um, you know, he, he states of... Um, Verses 15 to 17, he speaks about, um, you know, the familiar spirit, you know, how this book will have a familiar spirit. Um, in the original of Isaiah, that refers to a ghost. But in here, it doesn't mean like a spirit that has a familiar voice, but more like how the record will speak ghost-like. And this kind of is rather apropos because, like, the people, for more or less, will be destroyed and they will speak ghost-like out of the ground. So that kind of fits with the um, reappropriating, if you will. In verse 3, um, it's basically a reworking of Isaiah 29, 7 to 8. Verse 3 speaks of all the nations fighting and so forth. Um, there's actually a very good commentary by Brant Garner, and uh, this is the uh, mandatory monthly plug for uh, Brant's book. Um, everyone should get a copy. But when it comes to uh, verses, verse 3, um, Brant notes this about uh, Isaiah 
2879 that he's been reworked. Uh, Nephi restructures the introduction to by specifically design rather than Ariel, another name for Jerusalem. He leaves the dream of night vision because it fits his restructuring of the vice from the dust into a message from those who slumber in death. This passage is not simply altering and intermitting a few words, as has been in the case up to this point, rather it is a complex thematic reworking of Isaiah's original. Such a reworking cannot be explained as a difference in translation. It is well-crafted, however, taking literary themes and weaving them through together in a new fabric. And when it comes to, say, what is a Pesher or a Midrash, uh, he quotes um, Robert Eisenman, who's a uh, Dead Sea Scroll scholar, who's a bit eccentric, but I think most scholars tend to be when it comes to biblical fields. Um, he speaks about a Pesher in the context of the Dead Sea Scrolls community, but you can actually... Uh, appropriate it and transpose it to the Book of Mormon. Uh, Pesher is a commentary, a Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, a commentary on a well-known biblical passage, usually from those prophets, but also from the Psalms and sometimes even other biblical books. The important thing is that the underlying biblical passage being interpreted should be seen as fraught with significance in relation to the ideology or history of the community. Often this takes the form of assigning a biblical passage or quotation out of context, or even sometimes slightly altered, following words Pesher or Pesher Hedivar, meaning its interpretation or the interpretation of the passages. So basically, although Pesher and Midrash are like not one-to-one -one exact to what Nephi is doing, Nephi, as with many other Latter-day Saints when it comes to see various uh, texts we appropriate for our own uh, time, like Isaiah too, he's reappropriating and reinterpreting it in light of his either immediate context or the future audience in this case here mm -hmm. as well. And, and, and actually, to, to Robert's point, and this is important to notice because often critics will say, oh, Joseph Smith is just copying from the King James Version. <laughs> well, this is King James language, but it's, it's changed, but it's changed and still consistent. In fact, it, it gives a different interpretation to it. And so this is, this is something more than simply, oh, I'm cribbing notes from my Bible. And as Branch noted in his commentary, it's deliberate. It's not like, yeah. say, a slight change of, like, say, and or but or some kind of small conjunction it's actually a thematic alteration yeah. and it's consistent throughout these chapters as well and we're going to see this later in chapter 27 when he quotes uh, isaiah 29 13 through 16 chris your comments um chapter 27 if i was if i was assigning a theme to it it, it basically tells us or teaches us that the book of mormon is um one of the lord's um most effective weapons to enable us to fight against the work and influence of Satan, and that as we take and um, and as we study the Book of Mormon as our guide, we're going to be able to more easily detect or readily um, identify the false doctrines of the world um, in every aspect of our lives, religious, political, social, or anything else. I love how in verse 3 he talks about this hungry man, uh, he eateth, but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. And we certainly do see that in a spiritual sense in the world that we live in today, where people are spiritually starving after the truth, and they have this unquenchable spiritual thirst, and yet they cannot, you know, they cannot find the truth. And so they live in that perpetual state of spiritual um, ennui, in a sense. And then I love in this chapter as well, um, where it talks about the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. And I, I love to throw in here that certainly there were the three witnesses. And this is, of course, where they were. This chapter is what prompts the three witnesses. And then, and then, of course, what eventually prompted that wonderful movie produced by Interpreter Foundation Witnesses. Um, but um, the three witnesses to ask to be the witnesses to the Book of Mormon and then the eight witnesses. But it's also important to remember that Mary Whitmer was a witness to the Book of Mormon as the angel Moroni showed her the plates. And then Lucy Mack Smith and Emma were witnesses as well in the sense that they interacted with the plates and bore witness of their reality, although they never actually saw them. But they saw them, say, covered in a cloth. They would lift them and they would move them as they, you know, Emma would as she was working in the kitchen. And so, you know, these, this witness, these idea of witnesses. And then really, in the world that we live in today, as individuals gain individual testimonies, there are literally millions of witnesses um, that can testify of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon today. And um, the other part that I really love here is um, where we see the Lord and the Lord, uh, you know, as he advocates, of course, for the Book of Mormon and to come unto him that salvation is, of course, in and through Jesus Christ. Um, the way that he um, 
rejects the notion um, and, and, and teaches us that it is by faith and miracles, not by pride, learning, or worldly means, that God brings forth his word. And he says here, quote, I am able to do my own work. I am a God of miracles. I am God. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. And the Lord sort of rejects the pride, the arrogance, the hubris that accompanies the learning of the world and boldly insists that he can and will do his own work in his own way. And so that's why he says here, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people for the wisdom of their wise and learned shall perish and the understanding of their prudence shall be hid. And it's such beautiful phraseology to me. And um, as the Lord liveth, they shall see that the terrible one is brought to naught and the scorner is consumed and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. And they that erred in spirit shall come to understanding. And this is a beautiful ending because, you know, we're talking here about the destruction of the wicked. We're talking here about the importance of the Book of Mormon and learning from the, you know, the words and from the pages of this uh, sublime book. But then as he talks about the destruction that will come upon, you know, they that make a man a snare and lay a snare for him that reproveth. But then he goes on and he says, they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding. There's, you know, the Savior Jesus Christ constantly reaching out to mankind and pleading with them to come unto him that, as it says here, that, that they shall learn doctrine. And one of the things that I like to really focus on in, oftentimes in my teaching in the classroom or in a church setting is the importance of knowing the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is teaching us here. We can't anymore, as, as, as we shift away from the teachings of the world and as, they, as we separate and there becomes a greater and greater divide, um, between what the world teaches and the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we no longer are able to say, well, chastity is a good principle and practice. But we have to provide the why, and the why is found in our sublime doctrine, and our sublime doctrine is located in the Book of Mormon. Okay, let's move on to chapter 20. Now, and, and just as a final thing here, uh, as Robert has already pointed out, the quote of, from Isaiah here, uh, verses 13... Uh, all the way through 24, you, you have the same modifications. They are purposeful. They are not, as he said, incidental. They, they actually change things, but they are uh, expansions, uh, repurposing, and so on. And uh, <clears throat> it, it shows Nephi's you know, vowed love for Isaiah and how he wants to apply it as people. Robert. Uh, just before we move on to like uh, chapter 28, there's something rather interesting when it comes to uh, 2 Nephi 27, 15 about the, um, what would be fulfilled with the Charles Anton affair and uh, Merton Harris. Um, I've actually came across not too long ago, a very interesting essay by a liberal Old Testament archaeologist, Lester Grab. I believe he's actually an atheist, but he wrote an essay. Joseph Smith in the Gestalt of the Israelite Prophet in Ancient Israel in the book The Old Testament in Its Social Context uh, from 2006. And he actually analyzes Joseph Smith as a prophet and its Old Testament background. But he has the following to say about Martin Harris and the Charles Anton affair. Um, I think we have to accept that Anton's two accounts were self-serving, where he denies uh, authenticity. Uh, given authenticity to the characters, one suspects that if the entire truth were known, there might be some embarrassing aspects for him and his professional reputation. It would not surprise me if Anton was taken in temporarily by the lines on the paper, or at least was open to their authenticity until Harris enlightened him as to their origin. So he's claimed to have immediately recognized it as a hoax, reigns hollow. Regardless of what precisely passed between Anton and Harris, it seems without doubt that the latter, Harris, returned from the trip convinced of the authenticity of the plates and their writing. Uh, another critic of the church, David Wright, he was uh, he was excommunicated just before the September 6th. He actually has an essay, Joseph Smith's Interpretation of Isaiah and the Book of Mormon, Dialogue, uh, Volume 31, Number 4. And he also agrees that, um, quote, Anton is contradictory on this matter. In the Howe letters, he denies giving a written report. When the Kite letter, he says he gave Harris a document. And he kind of goes on basically saying, it seems like um, whatever you say about Martin Harris in the character's document, uh, Charles Anton was fibbing. Um, <laughs> and it seems to be the case, like uh, even Samuel <laughs> Mitchell did say the character document did have the 
um, the air of authenticity of a non-dead um, civilization. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate you adding that. Okay, with 28, uh, Nephi launches into the next three chapters, 28 through 30. He's talking about our time. Uh, and much like Moroni, he, you know, he sees our time. Uh, at least he sees it on a uh, societal and religious level. Uh, and the picture he sees is not pretty. <laughs> Uh, this is actually some of the, how do I want to put it, clearest eschatology revelation, end times. It's sort of like this is, this is how bad things are going to be before the Lord wraps up. And he will, he will actually end this with uh, uh, quoting from uh, Isaiah 11 about the Messianic age. So that's where he's leading up to the last days. So in 28, uh, it's something I said, I, I, as I mentioned, did I mention, I spoke in church today, High Council's talk on, on reading the Book of Mormon. And one of the things I pointed out, which actually uh, I think Nibley originally pointed out, and I believe it was since Camorra, the Book of Mormon shows ways of unbelief. It is a remarkable <laughs> documentation of how many ways it is possible to disbelieve in God and Christ with Laman and Lemuel, uh, well, actually, you can go all the way back to the Jews at Jerusalem, Laman and Lemuel, uh, the Nephite uh, corruption that Jacob talks about, Cherem, Nehor. Uh, uh, my mind's going blank. Korhor, there we go. Zoramites, uh, people of Ammonihah. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable, and they usually give these people a chance to fully explain themselves. So we have the same thing here where you have a description of all the ways of disbelief that he's seeing in the last days. Uh, so we've got, and, and they're all, you've got these churches that are all claiming to be the Lord's church, uh, but they deny, it says they, they, they teach with their learning and deny the Holy Ghost which giveth utterance and deny the power of God, which, you know, we're, we're talking... Uh, Basically, going to 16th century, maybe even earlier, Robert can give, give us a history, but uh, uh, between Catholicism and uh, Protestantism, uh, the move away, you know, closed canon, no prophecies, uh, no revelation. Uh, you do have, uh, you know, uh, among evangelicals, gifts of the Spirit and so on, but by and large, it's, uh, no, we can't do this. You have, uh, if there's a miracle wrought, believe it not, for there's, God has done his work. So you've got, you've got those among the religious who have their issues. Uh, and then I, I love, love verses 7 and 8 because <laughs> this, these are so great. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and it'll be well with us. But it's the 8th that's so great. Eat, drink, and be merry. Nevertheless, fear God. He will justify in committing a little sin. Ye lie a little, take advantage of one because of his words, dig a pit for thy neighbor, there is no harm in us, and do all these things. For tomorrow we die, and if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Uh, this, is, this is such an insight into human nature, uh, and particularly in, in modern human nature, and this is, this is quite quite different from, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, by Jonathan John Edwards. Edwards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just want to make sure I get his last name right. This is, this is sort of a, you know, live and let live. Yeah, it's all going to be fine. Robert, I will pass it on to you who can give us the uh, religious context. Here. Sure. Just looking at this from, like, say, a 19th century uh, perspective, this kind of would really reign uh, true to Joseph Smith and early members of the Restoration because you have, like, a plurality of churches all claiming to be the singularly true church, and that's basically what Protestantism was at the time. You know, um, Protestantism would claim, like, well, we all have the same gospel. But, you know, if you were to get, like, say, three Protestants and a Mormon or Latter-day Saint in the same room, they'd all bash on the LDS. But alone, they would actually all bash in one another about like infant baptism and um, a host of other topics. Uh, so there's a plurality of churches, which is reflective of like a very poor ecclesiology that is a theology of the church. Um, but uh, there's also the a very hard form of uh, cessationism, and that's a fancy term for after the apostolic era, 
not only would be there uh, be no more public revelation, like say um, scriptures and so forth, like uppercase A apostles and prophets, but also the gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues and the other signs of the apostolic age, that would be done in a way which um, that kind of perspective, which was very uh, common both among the uh, Calvinists, especially the Presbyterians, but funnily enough, among other Restorationists, like the Campbellites, they would have viewed that as like uh, evil and demonic as well. So there's an imputation, like say, evil to good and so forth in this kind of age mm -hmm. as well. Um, and also like a very uh, unusual form of universalism in the uh, passages you read, like, well, uh, no matter what you do, you'll be saved. And maybe like origins for you, like you may have to go to like some kind of purgatorial fire, but like at the end, you'll be saved anyway. Um, so you don't have to worry God's true vengeance and he's rash as well. I do kind of feel sorry for Jonathan Edwards to, to that effect, <laughs> you know, as abhorrent as his theology is from a largely same perspective. But the, it would have, I, I don't believe the Book of Mars is like a purely 19th century production, but at the same time, like um, it's important for rhetorical analysis to see like how the initial audience and would the early church received this, yeah. it, and they would have seen, yeah, this much of it rings true. Um, of course, this was before, like, say, the great age of martyrdom and so forth. That's more like e even in the future for from our perspective. But at the same time, this would have rang very true to like the Pratt brothers and others who were looking for something more solid than say. Um, trying to bring back the church to the 4th or 5th century as the Protestant reformers tried to do, you know, trying to bring it back to like an authentic New Testament Christianity. There's one singular true church. There's still the apostolic signs going forth and even public revelation as well. Chris? Um, I, I love these verses too. And um, in, in many respects, this is more and more the consensus of the Christian world in which we live, where it says, um, you know, um, God will justify you in committing a little sin, lie a little, taking advantage of one because of his words, dig a pit for thy neighbor. There's no harm in this. Do all these things for tomorrow we die. We are guilty. If we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, and at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. And here is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in um, his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Quote, Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting today for costly grace. In such a church where cheap grace is alive and well, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace therefore amounts to a denial of the living word of God. In fact, a denial of the incarnation of the Word of God. And so here we are, we're lulled, you know, into this false sense of security that we can go ahead and sin and that there will be no repercussions in the long run for our behavior or our practices. And there is no real reason to reform our behavior. And more and more we see this consensus, this kind of thinking, um, infiltrating many, many of the Christian churches in the world today. And then it goes on and it just describes false teachers, false doctrine. They rob the poor because of their fa uh, fine sanctuaries. You know, I'm, I'm not going to upset anybody. I mean, I'm not going to point fingers at anybody, but we see many of these monstrous churches in the world today, and enormous number of people are attending, and the people that manage these churches live like potentates and kings and and, you know, and the constant cry is, you know, give us money, give us money. And hopefully that money is going to, you know, the poor and not to the use of those people that are leading the churches. But it just also talks about the pride and the wickedness, the abominations and the whoredoms. And then the other part that I really love is I love um, in verse 19 through 23, but it says that the kingdom of the devil must shake. They which belong to it must needs be stirred up unto repentance, or the devil will grasp them with his everlasting chains, and they be stirred up to anger and perish. And, you know, we think about Satan in all his different incarnations. And one of the things that always fascinated me when we used to have three temple films was that the three films pretty much all hit the same note except when they portrayed Satan. And this is my description, but in one of the films they showed Satan as a creepy little sociopath. 
In a second film, they showed him as a smooth talker, a fraud who tries to schmooze and intimidate and deceive you. And then in the third, they showed him as a passive-aggressive bully. And, you know, we see the way Satan operates. Um, you know, what do we make of all this? We see that Satan has many incarnations. He's able to act with anger and to attack us. He's able to pacify us. He works, he'll flatter us, he'll seduce us until he enslaves us and leads us carefully down to hell. And so there's that understanding that we have to have of how skilled Satan is at what he does and how we have to be completely prepared. And that's why in verse 24 it says, Therefore, woe unto him that is at ease in Zion. And then, you know, 25, 28, 20, 25 through you know, 29, it's just a series of woe, woe, woes. And it's warnings. It's warning us not to think that all is well, not to hearken unto the precepts of men, um, not to think that we have received all we need to receive in terms of Scripture and we need no more, and to say that we have received the Word of God and have enough. And then, of course, the turn again after we see, you know, Satan and the ways that he will try to deceive and destroy. We have Jesus Christ teaching us that he will descend, he will condescend, he will descend to our level. And he will teach us line upon line, precept upon precept. And he will bless those who hearken unto his precepts and lend an ear unto his counsel. And in, as we do so, we have the privilege of learning wisdom. And then he will give us more and more. And um, cursed is he that put us his trust in the arm of man. It, they're exquisite chapters. They're very hands-on and they're very, in the sense that they are very practic practical in terms of how they can be applied so that we can avoid, you know, the, um, the wiles and the enticements of Satan in the world we live in today. Robert, do you have anything more on 28 before we move on? Uh, just two couple. Um, just... Uh, Chris actually had a great quotation from an excellent book, The Cost of Discipleship by Bonhoeffer. Um, he was arguing against what's called antinomianism or cheap grace, the idea like um, basically punch card Christianity, which is very common when um, some segments of Protestantism, usually the less creedal, less historical ones, and that was very common in Joseph Smith's time as well. Uh, in 1632 to 1634, there was the antinomian controversy in Puritanical uh, American Protestantism, and that actually still had ripples even to the time of Joseph Smith. I think that explains one of these changes to the JST, where it says, in the King James, God justifies the ungodly. I think that's why Joseph Smith changed it to God will not justify the ungodly. Um, because some were using that in the 19th century as a text that you could live however you wanted, i.e. sin as much as you wanted, and still be right with God. So I think, um, yeah, um, again, like from a 19th century reader's perspective, a lot of the this one chapter would have stood out like a sore tongue in, like, say, getting the um, facts, um, getting the head on the uh, nail, if you will, when it comes to, say, the problems, when it comes to the religious world at the time. Okay, we got about 10 minutes left. Uh, chapter 29. The Bible chapter. A Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible and we need no more Bible. Uh, my, my personal opinion is that God put this chapter in here, gave this to Nephi, had Joseph Smith translated simply to cause heads to explode. Uh, it's like, wait a second, Nephi can't know that there's going to be a Bible, you know, in, in 2,000 years or whatever, uh, though I actually less than that. A uh, little over 1,000 years in his case. But it's, it is... The one of the most powerful arguments against the parochialism of Christianity, of, of Christianity as it exists, that is, you know, there's this Bible. In fact, for, for much of Christianity, they don't even really care about the Old Testament. All they really care about is the New Testament. Uh, and it's, it's a stunning rebuke of the anti-Semitism pre prevalent through much of Christianity. Uh, because he's, he basically says, hey, you have a Bible. You got it from the Jews. You know, what thank have you for the Jews? Instead, you condemn them. Uh, and so it's, <clears throat> it is a powerful statement that, look, I care about everyone. I have talked to peoples all over the world. Their writings will be brought together. We have the Book of Mormon. We have the Bible. Uh, at some point, we'll have writings from the Lost Tribes. Uh, however those will look and uh, 
he said, you, you need not suppose, <laughs> and, 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 and Robert, I'm sure can talk about this. And like, you need not suppose it contains all my words. <laughs> uh, still an issue, still an issue today, <laughs> to this day. Robert, over to you. Yeah, uh, as you know, this is actually an indictment, not, against, uh, not just against Protestantism, uh, but the entirety of Christianity, because in spite of the differences of theology between Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and the various branches of Protestantism, they would all agree public revelation ceased with the death of the last apostle. Although there, there may be, like, say, spiritual gifts or private visions, like if you're a Catholic, Fatima, 1917, uh, there's no more scripture. There will be no more scripture that's been added. Um, so this is actually a direct critique, if you will, an attack, if you will, on not just Protestantism, but Christianity as a yeah. whole. And, you know, and as anyone who's ever uh, been in the dishes of, say, apologetics or what have you, um, especially the mindset of Sola Scriptura, the belief that the Bible, uh, presenting from the canon, but usually it's 66 books if you're a Protestant, is the sole infallible rule of faith, and all other rules of faith are secondary to that. Uh, this is, again, a very uh, important critique of it directly from Latter-day Saint Scripture, where it doesn't leave you ambiguous as like scripture sometimes does when it comes to certain doctrines uh it's like no that's a false teaching uh <laughs> and but i do like what you said about the um anti-semitism because the anti-semitism um mm-hmm. did creep in very early in christianity for instance if you were to survey the earliest christians when it comes to the millennium and if there would be a literal millennium uh the uh the predominant view in the early two or three centuries was there would be a literal 1000 year reign of christ on earth it wasn't a mere symbol but uh once the church got away from its jewish roots the idea of kiliism or like a 1000 year reign of christ which latter-day saints would hold to and some other groups would as well that was seen as too jewish if you will hmm. you see this for instance in Augustine's book uh the city of god and later the council of ephesus that would later elevate that as a teaching it was seen like a, as a uh, jewish heresy and um because for like a lot in mainstream Christianity, heaven is simply like having what's called the beatific vision where you see, albeit not physically, the essence of God. And that's basically what heaven will be like, um, which frankly is absurd. Yes. But uh, it, yeah, the, a little boring, so. but the anti-Semitism, and when I say anti-Semitism, I'm not saying like say, being critical of modern day Judaism, they need Christ. They have to accept the old New Covenant law. Moses not so vivid, but I mean actual anti-Semitism. It did very. It did creep unfortunately into like Christianity, where like unfortunately there was like the Great Divide yeah. in, in about eighty one thirty five, and that kind of uh, worsened things as well. But yeah, it's Matthew Bowen has an excellent paper though on um, the follow Semitism that our day saints should have because the Book of Mormon is a very good. Um, pro-Jewish with qualifications documents. Yeah. You know. Um, There's specific criticisms about the Jewish leaders at the time of Christ, but outside of that, it's pretty much yeah. God's like saying, this is my people, I will remember them, I will gather them, I will bless them. Yeah, because whenever the New Testament's critical of the Jews, it's not speaking of all Jews. Yeah. Because the altars were predominantly Jewish, and Jesus was Jews. a Jew. <laughs> they were, yes, they were all Jews. You know, it, it's like if I were to be critical, like, say, certain Irish people, it's like, the yeah. Irish. It's like, <laughs> I'm not self-hating. I'm just talking about a specific group who happens to be Irish, you know. Chris, your, your thoughts on this chapter. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to um, reiterate again. Um, um, if ever a book was, uh, was pertinent and poignant for our day and clear in articulating the stand of God about certain things, it's right here about anti-Semitism where Jesus Christ says, um, ye Gentiles, have you remembered the Jews, mine ancient covenant people? Nay. But ye have cursed them and have hated them and have not sought to recover them. I will return all these things upon your own heads, for I, the Lord, have not forgotten my people. But there's the Lord articulating that anti-Semitism is repugnant and condemned by him. And there's no place for it in this world. And we are seeing the rise of anti-Semitism in the world around us today. It, it should be shocking to everyone, if you understand a little bit of what's going on in the world around us today, and academia, and the kind of teaching that young people are receiving. It wouldn't surprise you. Nevertheless, it is repugnant to God, and it's something that God, you know, decries. And so I love that. And then I love the fact that um, the other... Um, I, uh, let me read... Um, Neil Maxwell talking about um, the fact that um, there will be a third scriptural witness yet to come um, from the lost tribes. And he says that it is coming. Its coming is likely to be even more dramatic than the coming forth of the Second Testament. Those who doubt or disdain the Second Testament of Christ 
the Book of Mormon, will not accept the, the third either. But believers will then possess a triumphant triad of faith. So there's that law of witnesses. Were it not for the Book of Mormon, we would not even know about the third set of records. And, you know, that just, to me, is exciting that there is so much more that we have to look forward to because one of the key concepts and principles of the true gospel of Jesus Christ is the principle of revelation, ongoing, persistent, consistent revelation in our day, led by a prophet of God on the earth today. And there's the Lord saying, you know, I will pour down revelation upon the earth to my beloved children. Um, as he, um, you know, um, unveils his doctrine um, more and more in our day. Okay, we have about two minutes left for chapter 30 here. Uh, actually, I'm going to punt right over to Robert right off the bat. Uh, sure, let's kind of deal with the controversial verse 6, um, where in previous printings he used white and delightsome, and now he reads pure and delightsome. And people are actually saying, well, this is evidence of the Book of Mormon being the racist document. I'll be trying quick. In verse 1, it's speaking about the Gentiles. And Nephi says, like, how his people should not think they're better than the Gentiles, i.e. the non-Jews. Everyone's equal in the eyes of God. So, like, although the Book of Mormon is, like, an ethnocentric us-versus-them text, you know, um, it's actually, at very times, like, very anti-racist and very inclusivistic. But when it comes to verse 6, the pure and delightsome, white delightsome people who will have the skills of darkness fall from their eyes, in context is the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are just non-Jews, and it's like a wide racial color spectrum, if you will. But when it comes to, say, the change, it wasn't a novelty in 1981. Uh, Joseph Smith actually made the change in the 1840 edition, but unfortunately, the later editions were based on the 1841 Liverpool UK edition, which was based on the 1837, and that's why it persisted until 1981. But even even one even if one wants to go with white and delightsome and not pure and delightsome in Hebrew Levan both means pure and white depending on the context but it's not about skin color because again it's about the Gentiles not African people or Native Americans or what have you it's about Gentiles and as a Gentile um, you know there's many different uh, shades of yeah. um, <laughs> you know so just might as well deal with the uh, controversial text while we have the time. <laughs> Uh, and then he wraps up quoting Isaiah 11, uh, messianic, uh, messianic age prophecy, uh, and uh, <clears throat> says, Wherefore the things of na- all nations shall be made known, yea, all things shall be made known unto the children of men. There is nothing which is secret, save it shall be revealed. Sounds like the internet to me. Uh, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's no work of darkness. Uh, we're going to, we've got about 30 seconds. Chris, got a 30 second comment? Yeah, 29 and 30, the Lord brings up the importance of covenants and the importance of covenants being, and actually, you know, when we talk about stumbling blocks, to my mind, oftentimes one of the stumbling blocks before before individuals, because of the Bible and plain and precious things being removed, is the removal of covenants, which are absolutely essential for our eternal salvation. So the Lord's going to mention those again here and how important they are in 29 and 30. And that, I think, was perfect. I think we're going to... Okay, it's supposed to be cutting in right now. <laughs> it lied we to can, me. We, it lied to oh. me. Except I'm sure it's gonna. <laughs> I'm sure it's gonna start cu- cutting up any second. Anyway, this is the end of the first hour of the Interpreter Radio Show. Chris Fredrickson, Robert Boylan, I'm Bruce Webster, trying to figure out the uh, the control panel as usual and waiting for this stuff to break in.